Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today more Technologies co-founders. It's a really interesting story about a company that was formed from students from the University of Arkansas that has already had an exit. And so we're going to be talking to them today. First, um, why don't you all go ahead and go around and introduce yourselves? Uh, Peyton, I'll start with you. All right. Uh, I'm Peyton Smith. Uh, I was a student at Walton College. I majored in finance and management. And uh, yep, I was a co-founder of More Technologies three years ago. Yeah, my name is Cannon Reeves. I am a computer science student. I have not quite finished my degree yet. I've got about 30 hours left. I uh, co-founded More Technologies about three years ago as well. Kashik? Yeah, so I uh, am still a student in quotation marks. Um, I actually started this company with Canon my right after my freshman year of college. So I actually only had one full year of college. So I've still got a quite of a ways to go. But yeah, one of the co-founders here. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll pass it off to Rex. I'm Rex Hearn. I majored in biomedical engineering and I kind of got started, you know, right when we all kind of came together around the same time that three years ago. And I've known Canon for a bit longer. And so that's kind of how I got into it. Great. Well, it's a really exciting story. Of course, I've been following it since you started. It seems like it was, I guess, three years ago, a little over three years ago. But what I want to focus on to start with really is one where did the idea for this come from? Canon, uh, would you share with us how you all met? Yeah, sure thing. So um, three out of the four of us are engineers. And so you got to kind of wonder, how do we pick up the fourth business person, uh, Peyton? Uh, that actually happened because uh, I was working in the Macmillan Innovation Studio. Uh, and Peyton came in and worked there as well. And we also took Dr. Helio's social innovation class at the same time. So Peyton and I were working on starting a nonprofit coding school. And around the same time, uh, you know, I, I was tinkering with robots all the time and I was wanting to build a robot for my little sister. And I had built one and Peyton had entered us in a startup weekend just on a whim, had no idea what we were getting into. And uh, by the end of it, we had seven new pre-sales and we thought, oh, maybe we should start a business. And so basically turned and said, who are the smartest people I know to <laughs> build a, a robotics company with? Uh, and uh, Rex, was a, an obvious first choice. He and I have been building robots together since high school. We went to the math and science school together. And um, yeah, so we, we've always kind of worked together on different projects and Rex has worked in the studio as well. Uh, and then a few months later, um, we brought Kashik on it. So Kashik and I met on the university's NASA robotic mining competition team. He was just, you know, an exceptionally good mechanical engineer and a bright guy and knew a lot about 3D printing. And so I thought we, you know, uh, we brought him on for a semester, and it was very clear that he would be a, a co-founder and a, a critical part of the team. So we all uh, formed together and, and went rolling. So how did you all get started? What gave you the idea? What was your path to creating this more technologies? It was an accident. It was a ha very happy accident. Uh, but what led that path was um, uh, Clint Johnson and the Macmillan Innovation Studio. I came in as an engineer, as a freshman, all about robotics and engineering. 
I had no consideration for business or, or even what the customer experienced or felt and the things that I created. And through working with the innovation studio and with Clint, he exposed me to that world of entrepreneurship and that community. And so I, I participated in a the Macmillan design contest my freshman year and we won that and that I got hooked on it and just never stopped. And then Peyton, you know, he's, he's got a bit different of a story. He's, he was ahead of me on, on uh, getting into this stuff. Yeah. So I started Walton in Walton uh, as a finance major with dreams of wall street that, you know, that sort of thing. And then I think it was around my junior year, I always kind of had the entrepreneurial bug, uh, took Mark Zweig's entrepreneurship class. And that really, you know, really got me interested in this, this entrepreneurship thing. And took his follow-on class and then decided to take uh, social entrepreneurship with Dr. Rogelio. And that was the class being Canon took together. And yeah, never thought I'd be starting a robotics startup with three other engineers, but uh, here I am. You know, when you, when you started the company, you probably had one idea about what your company would be providing or what kind of problem your company was going to be solving. And usually that, evolves over time. Would you mind telling me a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it was kind of interesting because we, when we started the company, it started with a kind of a big event doing the startup weekend. And so there was that final five minute pitch that I gave that kind of solidified, like, you know, here's our plan for the company. And, you know, I think a lot of details changed, but I think at the core, what we were trying to solve and what we were going after stayed the same. Things that changed were, for example, we weren't 100% sure if we were going to be focusing on selling to schools and education or focusing on selling to consumers. Uh, we ended up going hard into education. And surprisingly, a lot of what we considered ended up you know, following that path. Now our product changed a ton between when we started the startup weekend and until uh, the end of it, we were constantly iterating. We uh, used a 3D print farm to manufacture all of our parts so we could be very agile with our product development uh, because the time to spin up a new part was just basically nothing. So um, the product looks almost unrecognizable from the first one, but the, the vision and the mission stayed the same. You mentioned you had to iterate quite a bit, both with the product and with who the customer is. How did you go about making those iterations? Really what drove it was selling to customers and working with them. So we worked with nerdies uh, to, do some, to teach summer camps from the very beginning of the company. Uh, so we'd have these week-long summer camps with 10 kids and they would be building our robots and, and we would see all the ways that they would get frustrated with or all, all the issues that they would hit. On top of that, we participated in the Delta I Fund and the NSF i site at the University of Arkansas, and both of which really forced us to figure out who our customers were. We spent an entire summer going to education conferences and talking to teachers and figuring out uh, what they wanted and what they needed in their classroom. And I'll say we really knew from the beginning that the biggest important thing for the product was getting it in the hands of the students. No matter how much we thought we figured out all the kinks, once we gave it to a kid within like five minutes, they'd figure out something that was messed up with it or something like that. From the week after startup weekend or so, Canon asked, hey, the Fayetteville Chamber of Commerce wants to do a, a little spring break camp with our robots. Um, and so that's really where I, I joined in on the company. But that experience of seeing the kids play around with that like very early, early prototype, that, that alone was both really affirming, but also had a ton of notes of exactly what we needed to improve to make this from something that's cool and great to something that will sell great and really take us where we wanted to be. 
something that you mentioned that's like pretty important, right? Is like all companies shift their, uh, you know, their product a little bit, their market a little bit once they kind of narrow in on like what they want, who they are. Um, and that's where a lot of companies fail because you, you have to invest so much, especially in a hardware platform to get prototypes and figure out those mistakes. But we were really lucky. And I think the thing that kept us alive was the way we engineer things and our manufacturing methods specifically 3D printing. Because whenever we went to consumers and had issues with either product market fit or uh, features being broken or things that just needed to be tweaked because no matter how much you test something as an engineer, people are gonna find something wrong. Um, the ability to pivot and change our physical actual product so easily with added manufacturing made pretty much the only overhead cost being time, you know, the amount of time it took to do all that stuff. There was no hard, uh, you know, tooling and manufacturing and sourcing issues that came along with needing to make an improvement of a product. Um, so we didn't have a, like a hard V2 for a very long time, which, you know, is probably a problem when you're like really big, but when you're really small, being able to make those changes and then like, you know, in the middle of a summer camp, there being a massive flaw and then you being able to fix that very quickly and by the end of the camp that being fixed is huge because not only does that build confidence in your user, but you also can move so quickly and learn so much. So if you have the option, if an entrepreneur has the option of making prototypes with additive manufacturing techniques, it sounds like it's a good idea because you can pivot so quickly. Oh, most definitely. The thing that was unique with us is we very quickly went from, okay, we're going to have these 3D printed prototypes and then go to injection molding and pay for the tooling and put in, you know, almost $100,000 for our first product to, well, let's just design from the ground up to be 3D printed because it scales so well. So we start designing and optimizing all of our parts specifically to be manufactured with added manufacturing, which is really exciting because we were riding that wave of, you know, prosumer added manufacturing machines becoming reliable enough to actually do manufacturing full scale, but also cheap enough to where you can, you know, buy up, you know, 12, 15 of them really cheaply and actually run consistent manufacturing. How did you make your observations of the young students working with your products? So that's something that changed a lot from the beginning to the end. We we had a, a, a you know, a ton of enthusiasm. And, and so we wanted to do like proper like focus group days and, and everything like that. And we we did quickly realize trying to do those that they became for the size of our team. Uh, very hard to to manage both the day itself and, and to get everything organized while we're trying to get everything else going on as well. And so that's where uh, those nerdy summer camps really, really helped out is, is at least every year uh, we would have a six, five or six weeks uh, long summer camps where we would be the teachers there doing uh, with with our product. So we would be both instructing and also have the ability to step back a little bit and just see how the kids were working with it. Similarly, you spent one summer with the I-Corps, right, visiting conferences of teachers and stuff. How did you do that? And how did you take notes on it? And how did you synthesize all of that? Yeah, yeah so Canon and I spent, yeah, I guess summer 2018 with the I-Fund. That's before the I-Corps. And you know, it was all very new to us. We just kind of dived into it. Uh, the first conference I remember is going to is, I think, uh, National Science Teacher Association Conference in Philadelphia. 
we went in as just two college students looking to get some information and we talked to i think it was over 100 teachers by the by the time the weekend was over so we spent the whole summer talking to teachers calling teachers around arkansas uh striving to meet uh, teachers at different schools it was a, it was a big learning experience and by the time the summer was over, uh, you know, we had an idea for what the product was going to be, but hearing all this feedback, one, validated uh, a lot of the ideas we had, but two, you know, shaped it into a better product uh, before, you know, we got too into the weeds on product development. And, and to put some kind of uh, concrete examples behind this, it was as simple as you know, get tickets to a conference, walk around with a notepad, yeah. find people that look interesting to talk to. <laughs> and and that doesn't just mean teachers. We also talked to other vendors. So. Uh, we got to know the other entrepreneurs and, and business owners in our industry. It was very special to me to, you know, two years after that first conference to go back and see the same familiar faces, these people that were uh, very willing to help their would-be competitors out because we were, you know, we we're eager to solve this problem. We were working towards the same vision as them. And eventually we started to continue to go to conferences, but instead of getting booths, we would put robots on our back. And so we had this sort of like uh, escalation of robots where we started with putting a drone on our back just by accident. It was very popular. And then I got in this cycle of trying to one-up myself in terms of the crazy <laughs> robot that I would build. And that was the point where it got too popular <laughs> because we couldn't make it into the conference hall. We were being swarmed by teachers and then the conference took notice and kicked us out. So <laughs> I think that was actually humanoid. We also had like a... Uh, I think it was eight foot tall or nine foot tall humanoid robot like costume that I would wear. And I think the way this actually started, we were at, I think it was like TCA or something, a conference, got a hotel a little bit further away. It was like, ah, oh, we don't want to pay for an Uber and take all the stuff in there. Um, so we're just using line bikes to get around. And so we just strapped the robots to our back and then scooted to the conference. Eventually like, okay, we'll take them out and hold them so we can show them to people. But very quickly, a lot of teachers were like, ah, oh, look at those guys with the robots on the back. Genius marketing idea. <laughs> Scrappy. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to really bring out that I think a lot of people who are interested in entrepreneurship or just not even entrepreneurship, just owning their own business, they don't realize how much work people like you who are successful at this put into understanding users and customers. Did any of you, before you got into this, really understand how much effort had to be put into understanding users and customers? No, the amount of startups, I think the number one reason startups fail, if I remember correctly, is building something customers don't want. And, you know, for us to have built something uh, that customers did want, and then, you know, exit three years later, you know, I think that's a testament to, you know, just how important that is and, and how much work we had to put into understanding the customer's needs. And beyond that, uh, we weren't just like, hey, let, I, we have this idea, let's make it. Um, we were very close to the problem. And in a lot of ways, we were actually the possible consumers of it because we all built robots through high school. And, you know, I specifically taught robotics through high school and uh, afterwards as well. And so these were directly addressing the issues that I saw whenever I taught using existing platforms. And so I came in with extensive knowledge of competing platforms from a teaching point of view. And Canon and Rex came in with an understanding of the usability from an advanced point of view. And so we had this really good team understanding going in with a lot of background knowledge. Well, you know, your, your point about your experience as a teacher of robotics, you knew what the problems were and you knew what the platforms were. 
which is another piece of this, right? Because successful companies solve real problems. And many times it's very difficult to know what the problem really is unless you've experienced it to some degree. And so so your team, you and your team have, have experienced it, but then you didn't stop there. You didn't, you weren't presumptive and say, okay, well, here, uh, I'm gonna come up with a solution and solve it. No, you dug in and, and observed users, interviewed customers. At what point did you realize you had product market fit? I'm biased. I don't know that we ever hit it. Uh, <laughs> here's why. When, when I think of product market fit, I think of holding a rocket ship to the ground. You've got a rope to it and you're, you're holding it. And what I think the 99% of startup experiences are is trying to pull a boulder up a hill. And I think we were pulling a boulder up the hill for most all of it. It has to do with the industry and the type of product. Education takes a long time to refine the product to where any general user, any general teacher, you can walk in and a science teacher in any classroom in Arkansas could pick it up and do well with it. It takes a lot of work to get there. It's very hard. And we are at a point where your robotics teacher would understand it. And your robotics teacher that's, you know, really goes above and beyond would pick it up well. So we had our part of the market that loved us, but we had not hit, I think, a broader market adoption. And uh, around when COVID hit and the Sphero deal happened, we were in the process of making that next iteration. So even at the very end of the company, we were changing and iterating so that we could get closer and closer to product market fit. That's really a good point. And yeah, you're right. So you you basically know you have product market fit when you've got customers wanting the product and you're not having to push it so hard. But then at that point, you have to start scaling. And I know it's kind of an iterative process too, right? You you start getting closer and closer to product market fit. And eventually you start saying, oh, what's our business model going to be? Would you mind speaking to that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, first, our big question was, Cannon mentioned earlier, uh, you know, are, are we selling to consumers or are we selling to education? You know, initially, I thought both were, were very viable markets, but I was definitely in the consumer camp, not because I didn't believe in the education market, but because, you know, we talked to so many investors and and people that had been in the space, it, you know, and all of them said education's tough. It's slow sales cycles. Um, it's it's hard to sell to schools. Uh, you know, it's like selling to the government. There's a lot of approval bureaucracy involved, and so we did a Kickstarter for that. And I think uh, I guess March of 2019, and uh, that did you know reasonably well. Um, definitely not uh, as good as we'd hoped. So we raised about twenty two thousand um, dollars. But at that point, you know, some of those some of those backers were educators, uh, and we'd been making some traction outside of the Kickstarter campaign as well with teachers around the state. And I think then it became clear that that education uh, was our market. But beyond that, you know, the the big question was how do we sell into education? You know, there's all these different ways. Are we picking up the call? You know, the phone, doing cold calls? Are we you know sending emails, driving to schools, banging on the door? It was a constant learning process over, let's see, 2019, 2020 of, you know, how to figure that process out because none of us had sales experience. And yeah, it was, it was a big learning curve. And we just found out, you know, you just have to, you can't forget about sales. It's easy to forget about sales. It's got to be the number one focus uh, beyond the customer. Um, you know, we, we were always iterating on our sales process, but I think we did a good job from the beginning of locking down our unit economics. Mm-hmm. We were very cautious as a hardware startup because it's so easy to get in a rough position as you scale, you know, both from a distribution perspective, but also like just uh, the logistics on the back end. Uh, 
I will say we did have strong margins throughout the whole thing. You know, we, we never sold at a loss. We always had 70% yeah. margins, 65, 70%. And so uh, I think we were building a stable, sustainable business. Uh, it just takes a while to build the sales funnel and, and make that consistent. When you get to that point where you are on the cusp of product market fit, you start feeling the pull and your business model is not solidified. Parts of it are, but parts of it aren't. At that point, really, you can quickly wind up getting into a scaling kind of a phase. Because as you start the scaling, you you can modify the business model a little bit. But at some point, you have to be bringing in enough money to hire people, design and implement processes and implement technology to be able to really scale. One of the big challenges with your company, regardless of how good the product is, you've got to deal with the channel. So that's where you were. And, and what did you do next? I'll, I'll go ahead and say that um, we were really on path to maybe not figuring it out, but really hitting that hard right when COVID hit while we were trying to scale everything up, all the demand was going away. So we, we kind of missed out on that a little bit just because the market kind of fell out from underneath us. And, and to paint a picture for pre-2020, we had completed the Kickstarter in, was it summer of 2019? Yeah, so summer 2019, we were shipping units and we moved to the startup village. And we were having a hard time keeping up with demand with 3D printing and, and our fulfillment process. But we definitely felt those pains as we were trying to scale up our, our print farm, our packing process. And in the point where we had to get an ERP felt kind of different. It was like, oh, we actually have to like put inside a system, you know, what the order time and the middle, minimum order quantities are. We had received $50,000 from the Delta I fund. And we had made that last for a long time. They got our Kickstarter money. We were in the process of raising a $250,000 seed round. And, you know, we were still meeting with investors right up to when, uh, when COVID hit. And so when COVID hit, we had to take a step back and say, what can we do to uh, you know, generate income and improve the product still and, and be ready to come out of, at the end of COVID ahead? And so we had started applying grants. So one of the first things we did was apply to the Technology Development Program grant. And we received $50,000 from that to uh, essentially develop the next version of our product. And we are in the process of applying to an SBIR uh, for a drone product. And that is when we actually met with the CEO of the acquiring company and this all came on into our radar in, in July of 2020 or so. So during COVID, you met the CEO of the company that would eventually acquire you. Yeah. And we had met him before at a conference just briefly. And so, so this company, we saw ourselves working with them from even from the beginning when we started. You know, we, we had shown them all the ways that we had integrated our products and kind of shown him this vision for how we can work together. But we didn't pitch it as like, you know, buy it. <laughs> we had no idea that would even is even an option. And he basically discussed that with us. He says, you know, you guys are on the start of what's a really hard climb to build a great education company that is sustainable. And we love your product. And there's just all these ways that we can work together. So I think they saw it as a way where they've built up the distribution channels. They've built up these backend systems. And they saw it as a way to accelerate what we were doing and, and for us to, to expand and grow their business as well. So will you all be continuing to work in a similar way going forward or how will your lives look different? Yeah, it'll actually be really similar. Uh, so we've all taken jobs with Ciro. Uh, I'll be a product manager uh, overseeing 
basically the relaunch of our product uh, at Sphero. Uh, but as far as like, you know, how our day-to-day -day lives are changing, we're still going to be working out of the startup village uh, on Dixon Street. And, you know, we'll be there for the time being. Uh, it's almost like a Sphero satellite office now. Um, so, you know, we'll still be working closely together. Um, and, you know, what's great about the deal is, you know, we still get to work on the products, you know, we love. And, you know, a lot of times you sell to a company and, you know, they may or may not use it, but, you know, we're still working on the same things, you know, we were working on six months ago. And now we just have all the resources uh, to get it to where we want to take it. Yeah. So uh, I'm moving into an electrical engineering role. So at Moore, our, our main stuff was all the mechanical, and that's what Canon and Koshuk are really good at. So I, I kind of bolstered us with the electrical and some of the programming and, and supply chain and just wherever anyone else was feeling a bit too overworked or anything like that. And so I'm moving into that position with Sphero where I get to work on these tougher problems that are more what I've been wanting to do and I can put my sole focus on them, which is so much nicer not having to worry about business side of the company or supply chain or anything like that. I just, I can focus in and get the stuff done that I want to. Uh, Rex kind of hit on this, but the majority of our job has just shifted from um, kind of doing what we do now, but mostly just focusing on the things that we'd like to do and that we're good at. You know, yeah, I'm a mechanical engineer, but the majority of my time before the acquisition was spent on operations doing, uh, you know, so much packing, running a bunch of optimizations, doing a lot of industrial engineering, manufacturing side of things. Um, now you just get to be a mechanical engineer. I think something fun to end on, because I know we're running close on time, is just to give you an idea of how crazy you kind of have to be to be in the situation and how much it's really not about anything but the product. It was right after we launched Kickstarter and we were doing a lot of international orders and things were crazy. And like I said, a lot of what I did was operations. I just came out of wisdom tooth surgery and I literally was on my way walking to the car, like the nurses were holding me up and I was completely out of it. And I got a, a message from Singaporean customs because there's an issue with one of our packages and some of the formalities were wrong. And so I was literally getting on the phone with Singaporean customs and I could barely speak English. And I, and I was texting Peyton as well. He was like, get all these forms ready. I'm going to go them out because they're all have my name on it. And Peyton was like, are you okay? <laughs> and I told him what happened. He's like, yeah, I just came out of surgery, but it's okay. I got this. And he's like, okay, <laughs> just transfer everything onto my name and I'll take care of this one instance. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> that is a good way to end. Well, hey, really, Kashuk, Rex, Peyton, Cannon. It, this has been a real joy for me, actually, to just see. Again, I hadn't been super involved uh, as as dean, but I've been aware of every step. And I remember when you won competitions and reading about it. And of course, I've talked to you all about it as well. But I feel like this is a real joy to see that you you all made your learning experience here the most it could be. I'm proud of you, each of you. But also, I can tell you, many faculty are, I've told a number of people I was going to record this uh, with you, and I think sometimes it's hard, it's a big school, and you don't know what everyone's thinking, but there were a lot of faculty following what you were doing, and uh, to see um, your success is joy for everybody, and I think it's good for our community as well. So thank you for what you've done. I appreciate it.
Yeah, and and thank you uh, just, you know, for being a great dean. And I, I love my time at Walton. I know, you know, and speaking of faculty, Sarah Goforth has been instrumental in our success, uh, has been a great advisor. And then some of my professors, Mark Zweig and Rich Lawrence, were instrumental in getting me involved with this and just, you know, teaching me so much about life and entrepreneurship. And yeah, I just have a lot to uh, be thankful for from my Walton professors. Huge shout out to Sarah Goforth. Honestly, I don't know if I'd still be a student if it wasn't for Sarah specifically. So <laughs> thank you so much, Sarah, for helping me balance school and work. Just huge rock star. Well, thank you all and um, best wishes in the future. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.